Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. The way that we practice primary care today is woefully inadequate for the needs of modern life. That is the subject of today's episode, how we get care from doctors, how we meet them, and how we manage our health. Today, I get to interview an entrepreneur who started her career as a doctor. She had a med school track at Columbia University. After practicing for a while, she decided to become an entrepreneur and build a new healthcare system focused on better patient primary care. And in designing this new model, she launched Parsley Health in New York City. Dr. Robin Burzen is the founder and CEO of Parsley Health. She's a summa cum laude graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, and she went to medical school at Columbia University. While she was at Columbia, she co-founded the physician communication app Curator, and later she trained in internal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital. She's also a certified yoga instructor, a meditation teacher, and she writes all over the internet for a number of leading wellness sites. She has spoken for Stanford Medicine X, the Clinton Foundation, Health 2.0, Summit at Sea, and Further Future on How We Can Reinvent Healthcare. In today's episode, we talk about the shift from her medical training to her path as an entrepreneur and the challenges particular to building a business that she faced as a CEO. She tells us the story of how she was fundraising while pregnant and she was in the middle of a round when her child was born. I ask her about her parenting journey. Then we dive into some of her research around fertility and IVF and what she's finding with patients about the holistic care model that seems to work better than other models we have today. I was fascinated by her research and her work and her winding path to becoming an entrepreneur. So I cannot wait to bring you today's episode. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. If you live in the United States, you are entitled to a free breast pump with your insurance. But navigating the insurance can be such a pain and so much paperwork and so many logistics and so many hoops to jump. Aeroflow Breast Pumps, the company that is sponsoring this episode, is dedicated to making the hassle of getting a breast pump a lot easier for brand new mamas, second time mamas, and anybody that needs to get a breast pump. They also have a ton of resources about how to manage breastfeeding and pumping and navigating the transition back to work, including a step-by-step guide for how to make an awesome pump room. Head over to aeroflowbreastpumps.com slash startup, and they will quickly and easily help you qualify for your free breast pump. I just used them for my second kiddo, and it took it really took only a couple of minutes to go on, enter my information, and then they said, yep, I got an email right away. They said, yep, you get a new one. Go pick one out. I picked one out, and they said, great, we'll send it to you once your insurance window is here. And they just took care of everything, so I didn't have to have a calendar alert and a reminder and all of these extra steps. So it was super useful and a relief. There is certainly enough to do when you're prepping for a new baby and having somebody like Aeroflow on your team is really helpful. The link is in the show notes and it's also on our website. All right, everyone. I am so excited to have Robin Burzen on the show. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So my favorite first question to ask people is to tell me about your morning. What time did you wake up today? And what did you do first? (laughs) Well, today's a little bit of an exception. I think I woke up around 830 because my husband was kind enough to let me sleep in. We have the same birthday and our birthday is tomorrow. So we are trading off this weekend and he is I will let him sleep in tomorrow. (laughs) Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so this, this morning was an odd and rare exception in which I wandered downstairs at 845 for coffee and to greet my family. But normally, I'm up around 630. And first order of business is either straight away walking the dogs or taking a shower. But one of those two things happens or reverse. And 
My morning kind of meditation is walking the dogs without my phone. We live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and we live near the water. So I can walk along the water with them. It's a great view of New York City. And it's a great kind of peaceful moment before I get back to the house and am getting my currently 16 month old up and out of bed or helping my husband with him or getting ready for work. And then it's kind of off to the races from there. And do you have a long commute to get to work or is it close by? Sort of in the middle. I, I can't complain too much. I'm a straight shot. Our office at Parsley Health is in Union Square and I'm in Williamsburg. So we are, it's about a half an hour and I usually take about five minutes out to go there. We have an amazing coffee spot near us. And so part of my morning is like walking into this big, beautiful coffee shop and getting my espresso and feeling like, all right, I can do this. Uh, and then getting on the train, which any train in New York City is like semi-miserable, but it's, it's fast. <laughs> you just deal with it. It's true. The New York City subway is a different experience. Yes. Oh, where does your kid go? What happens to him? Uh, so we are lucky that we have a very loving and wonderful full-time nanny. Uh, and she comes around 8.30 in the morning. She's there from 8.30 to 6.30, Monday through Friday. So we are fully, fully childcare. You know, I work, my husband works, and I do work from home one day a week. So I work from home usually on Wednesdays. Often my reality is that I'm still jumping into the city for a couple meetings, but I try to take some time every Wednesday where I get to have a good fun activity with him. And then, you know, that way I also feel like there's only sort of two days and two days where I'm fully gone out of the house all day. Uh, and there's a little break in the middle of the week where I'm at least around him. But he hangs out with her and has playdates and goes to the park. And there's this new park with near us and fountain and it's a summer and he's like obsessed with this fountain. So <laughs> he has a good time. We're, t we're contemplating, you know, preschool and stuff. Also a special experience in New York City. It's like a Olympic sport to get your child into any form of education. <laughs> Uh, in, in this town, but we're, we're working on it. So. Yes, it's true. So tell me about your, your pregnancy and your parenting journey. Yeah. So I, I was definitely one of those people who kind of pushed having babies off a bit later. Although I set a rule for myself, you know, being a doctor and all knowing the precipitous drop off statistically, at least um, in eggs at around 35, that I would try to be pregnant by 35. That was kind of this rule that I had. And my husband was ready to go, I would say probably two years before I was. So, you know, I was I was in delay mode, to be totally honest with you for a long time. But when I was 34, I said, all right, we're gonna gonna do this. And I didn't have any issues, you know, my my work is optimizing health and I walk the walk very much. So I'm lucky that I was pretty healthy going in and had regular cycles and wasn't terribly worried about anything, but I'd never been pregnant before and I had no idea if I was going to have trouble or not, especially being, you know, well over 30 by the time I got started. So, but luckily got pregnant pretty easily. I think we tried a couple of months and all in all I had an easy pregnancy, like a sort of dream pregnancy. I never got sick. I never even, I think I got nauseous like a couple times. Everyone's like, ah, oh, I hate you. But I, I had a really easy active pregnancy. I was in regular yoga classes, you know, three days past my due date. I'm a big yogi. Yoga is my love. So I sort of stuck with that. And I just tried to stay really active. And then I was also, I kind of completed my first round of outside capital for my company fundraising um, as I was, got pregnant. And launched two new medical offices for Parsley on the West Coast, LA and San Francisco that fall and winter while pregnant. And so it had a lot of back and forth and travel. And I kind of just decided like, all right, I'm just going to do this and I'm not going to let it stop me. And really ran, ran full throttle right into the end was in the middle of a second round of capital or seed right as I had my son had to kind of pause for a bit and then resume the round. That was I can get into that if you want, but that, that I don't recommend. Yeah. I, I want to <laughs> hear about that. That was not good. That was extremely stressful. Um, but the pregnancy was super healthy and you know, you never know what you're going to get, right? I mean, you could end up super nauseous. You could end up super sick. You could end up having a lot of issues or not. And a lot of that, no matter how healthy you are is outside of your control. So my attitude towards pregnancy was that I was going to control what I could control. And that was around my own personal health and continuing yoga and meditation and things like that. Um, fundraising ended up kind of kicking off around at the beginning of 
what, what was that? 2017. Yeah. And was due February 12th. And I motored and I got about half of it done. And then I had the baby and just had to stop. And those first, as we all, as many of us know, first, first few weeks, um, first month, you know, I, I admittedly, I was on calls. I had him on a Tuesday and I was on calls on a Friday. Um, but I also was home and I was not in fundraising mode and I was not out doing meetings and I was not going into the office. And I was both focused on enjoying these first couple incredible weeks of his life and also healing. And at the same time had this kind of pressure breathing down my neck. And I think in the emotion of, of completing the raise, and I think in the emotion of it all, I, at one point I like sent an email to some investors that I definitely shouldn't have sent. <laughs> and that, like some of my existing investors and advisors, I, you know, were like, whoa, Robin, like you need to, what is going on? This is not you. You're not yourself. And, uh, those investors ended up Oh no, they ended up participating in the round. And another set that I was dealing with, I think I scared off, honestly. And then in those those first six weeks after, I kind of I don't know how to describe it, but on the work side of things, especially fundraising, I think I got I got scared. I lost my mojo. I lost some of my confidence. I had entered a new mode, which was a beautiful, awesome new mode, but me being me, like again, being totally honest, I was resistant to motherhood on some levels. I was resistant to changing. I was focused on building this thing and didn't want to stop that as much as I was excited and in love with my new, wonderful, amazing baby. And so it wasn't a negative around having children. It was more of a fear around the work. Right. And I kind of entered this mode where I really, I think, psyched myself out about a lot of things. And I remember sitting down about a month after having him or five weeks or something with one of my advisors and who's also an early investor in the company. And he was like, Robin, whoa, you need to like snap out of it. He's like, where's the woman I know? Like, where is your Ted talk that you give? Like, go out there and just like raise this capital. Like you've got this, you're fine. But he kind of like was like, you need to like snap out of it. Like you are, you've really kind of talked yourself into a tailspin. And at that moment, it really did snap me out of it. And I realized, I think that I could be both. I could do both. I didn't have to translate, I think, this outside world's view that if you're a new mom, you can't do other things. I think I'd internalized some fears around that that weren't really my fears. They were other people's fears. And long story short, I ended up raising the rest of the round, raising a lot more money than I had originally set out to, which turned out to also be a good thing. And I also ended up raising from some incredible investors who I would have shut out of the round if I had finished before I'd had the baby or if I'd finished, quote unquote, on time or and also would have raised less. And so the cool thing was that I ended up it all as many things sometimes do in life. It's not always so lucky, but sometimes I find things work out way better than whatever your plan for them was. Yeah. Uh, and this was one of those cases, but I definitely had the feeling last spring or spring of 2017 of this moment where I've described it as like sliding down a wall by my fingernails. Like I just felt like everything was falling apart. Um, and that was really scary, but in some ways it was kind of, I think a necessary transition of finding my new footing, my sea legs, if you will, in motherhood while running the company. And I will attempt not to fundraise around giving birth again, but (laughs) at least if for some reason that happens, as these things are not always exactly timing in life, it's not always under your control, I'll have a little bit better, I think, confidence and wherewithal around it. I mean, timing is so hard, especially for so many women who are listening that want to you have goals, ambitions, things you want to do, things you want to accomplish. And it's not, it's not wrong or bad to want to do those things, to want to chase after them. I'm curious about this feeling that you were sliding, you said by your fingernails down a wall. When was that like a few months postpartum? And where do you think that came from? Do you think it was because of work, because of going after bigger things? Like, Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think it was like right in that time, about a month, postpartum. And I don't think that I had postpartum depression. What I would describe is that I had like moments of it. Like I'd have a day, right. Where I was just like a mess crying, stressed out, stressed out about how am I going to run this company that has, you know, early stage startups, like 
every day you work up, wake up to 99 problems and, and fires and you put out like 36 of them. And then the rest, you just let burn until the next day. And you wake up to 99 more. Like your job as the CEO and founder is just to like manage. And then you add new baby into the mix and, and motherhood, which is new to me. And, and as lucky as I was, I mean, he's a healthy, healthy, happy kid and was pretty big coming out. So therefore slept as <laughs> the, the trade-off to a large child getting them out is that at least they kind of sleep a little bit earlier. <laughs> um, I feel like that's like your, your, your silver lining gift as a mom, maybe. But he, you know, he was great. And I had a lot of support. Like I said to my husband and my family, like we, I need a night nurse and that feels really extravagant and like a major luxury. And I, and the whole idea of paying for childcare was new and scary because we were like, how are we going to afford this? We're startup people, not, you know, crazy wealthy people. And all of that was just new. And I, I did have a lot of support in terms of having a night nurse and then having a nanny. And I knew that I said to my husband, like, I can't be me and do this without help. Right. And so that was kind of the deal. We were going to figure out financially how to get help, but mm. there's even like weird layers of guilt in that. Right. For mom. So I think the nails, you know, sliding on the wall by my fingernails feeling was probably some hormonal shifts and, and mood stuff. But you know, on a day to day basis, I can't say I was depressed. It was more of these, these flashes here and there but it was the combination of like this company that I'd grown from nothing, had bootstrapped, was the figurehead of raising money for, which I was doing completely alone. It was purely my role in the company. I didn't have a co-founder or somebody else to kind of take on that, that mm-hmm. process. I was dealing with everything from the legal to investor relationships to finance, literally absolutely everything, to actually running the company, which was much bigger now, but really, really, really small that then. And I think I just felt like I was losing my grip and I lost, I lost my confidence and I lost my confidence and my ability to do it all in the face of these compounding new challenges and the fundraising pause, like for anyone who's raised money knows that momentum is everything. So to stop in the middle and and then restart, basically like you lose all the momentum you had before. So you kind of have to regain that. And it took me like a month then of restarting and my friend sitting me down and kind of shaking me a little bit to say like, Oh wait, like I know how to do this. I'm okay. Like I've got this and I can gain, not only gain regain, I would say the momentum around the fundraise, but just like regain my own momentum. And I think that's just like really, really natural and normal. I'm probably someone who tries to like minimize stuff that's happening. And I'm like, oh, I'm okay. Or like, I find it like inconvenient to be freaked out about stuff. <laughs> and so I, I don't like let myself, but I think, I think what I was just going through was just this need to process. And I also needed to realize, which is, you can only see on the other side in hindsight that like, it was going to be okay. And it was okay to take this pause, but it was the simultaneous pressures that just made me feel like literally I'd like lost my grip on all of it. And, um, it took a minute to get that back, but you know, it worked out. Hmm. What was recovery like for you? And, and did any part of the physical changes in your body surprise you, especially with your background in medicine? Oh my gosh, so much, you know, so much of medicine today is very um, unpatient focused. <laughs> we are focused on the disease in healthcare, not at Parsley, but in healthcare, we are focused on the disease much more than the person. So, you know, you don't learn about in medis- medical school, what it takes to breastfeed a newborn or what it takes to heal the pelvic floor. You know, as much as I had witness births and I'm not a pediatrician. I had done a pediatrics rotation in medical school and a certainly a uh, OBGYN rotation in medical school, but these are like five week rotations. And if you don't go into that field, you're by no means like an expert in it. It's not what you do all day. And so I was surprised by so many things. I mean, I was surprised mainly I, I didn't tear, which was awesome. Um, I ended up having a vaginal birth, which I had wanted um, with an epidural, which I had tried to stick out not having, but ended up at two in the morning, Hail Mary and being like, give me them. <laughs> Anesthesia is my best friend right now. Um, and all of that was good. I went into childbirth wanting as natural as possible, but also being extreme pragmatist on like, 
whatever happy, healthy baby and me look like is cool. Like I'm not attached to a particular birth beyond like it would be, I would ideally not have a C-section knowing what I know about what the microbiome and what's great for mom and baby. But I personally was a C-section birth and I consider myself generally healthy and fine. So I was, I'm, I'm okay. I was cool with whatever went down and, and was really happy with the, with my birth experience with our OBs who were awesome. And so, but I was still so surprised. Like, I was like, Oh wait, it takes weeks for your belly to go down. I'm like, I had just had the baby. Why do I still look pregnant? Like stupid things like that, that were just, you know, not what you focus on when you're training in medicine. And then for me, probably the hardest thing about recovery, um, my recovery was generally pretty good. Uh, I worked with a postpartum pelvic floor person who was awesome. Um, and I think that's something that I work with our members at Parsley Health a lot on is making sure that they get some postpartum pelvic floor work and guidance after having a baby, um, whether they were section or, or natural childbirth, because the what happens to the pelvic floor. And in Europe, they focus with women a lot on healing. Um, and in America, that's just like not part of the conversation, which is beyond me. Like, how do we heal mom? So I, I did that. And I and I educate our members at Parsley um, a lot about that. But breastfeeding for me was really hard. And that was probably, I think, the biggest shock and the hardest thing for me about those first six months until I kind of, honestly, to be honest with you, like gave up. But I, I I stuck it out as long as I could. And, you know, you just don't know what it's going to be like until it happens to you. And and that was the biggest surprise. And the hardest thing for me was was breastfeeding. Yeah. Uh, amen. And can you talk more about that? Because I think there's so little conversation about how hard breastfeeding can be. And And I'll confess that I was the 20 something a-hole who was like, oh, it's going to be easy for me. I don't know why I had that in my brain, but I just, it was an assumption. Like it's natural, it's easy. And so can you talk about why it was challenging and, and what your experience was like? Yeah. And I'm curious to hear yours. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's different for everyone and you have these images in your mind of like smiling mama with baby latched, you know, everyone's peaceful and it's the coziest thing in the world. And um we just in the first like two weeks, we just, I was, I had good milk supply, but we just something about his latch, he would feed and still be hungry. It's like he wasn't getting the milk out. And so, you know, three ridiculously overpriced lactation consultants later, visiting our pediatrician and getting freaked out about weight gain, um, going to a mama's group lactation class um, with a lactation consultant. That was actually a hundred times more helpful than the fancy pants people who came to my house. Um, the class for like 30 bucks with all the mama sitting around and the woman there was more helpful than anything. But, you know, I was in a lot of pain. There was damage to my left nipple and it just felt like no matter what we did, it wasn't working. And we ended up going through the whole tongue tie thing and having his frenulum snipped by, you know, there's like two top doctors in New York city and this is like all they do. I'm like, wow, this is <laughs> as a doctor, I'm very appreciative of them and I'm not knocking them at all, but it's like, I think they get like 850 bucks per snip and it's like a 10 second procedure. <laughs> I'm like, I am in the wrong field. Like <laughs> this racket. Um, I'm so damn hard and spending so much time with people at Parsley. Uh, but it's, it's, it's funny, but we did that and it didn't really honestly feel like that helped. And so we ended up, I ended up in this situation where I was like pumping all the time and feeding him pumped milk out of a bottle. Uh, and in part, I think that was because I was, I was working and on calls and stuff pretty early on, even though I was home and mainly because he, we never, we felt, I felt like I would breastfeed for like ever and then he'd still be hungry. So it was like, he was just not getting milk out of my boobs at the rate that was making any sense. Uh, and, but I was really committed to breast milk. I was like one of those people who's like breast milk or the highway. I had like a momentary one day when my milk supply dropped. Um, I was also one of those people where anytime I would do any form of exercise or, anything like, um, get a little bit dehydrated, uh, my milk supply would drop. So it felt like I was in this constant battle to keep my milk supply up and constantly pumping, which 
for everyone. I don't know who likes pumping. I think it just sucks and is like this archaic thing. I can't believe it exists. The first day we unpacked the pump and my husband, and I looked at it. I was like, I, what the F is? <laughs> I cannot believe this happening right now. It took me a while to mentally get over that. And then I was running around, you know, with work, I was pumping at the office, I was pumping on planes to California, I was pumping. I have this great story of when I was in LA. And I got a meeting with like the head of healthcare for Disney. And <laughs> I had to get in this Uber. And I realized that like I needed to pump and I made my Uber stop off at an auto zone to pick up a power adapter so I could pump in the Uber on my way to this. Because <laughs> you have to, you need the power for the pump. And I think just all of that was so frustrating and so traumatizing. And he was fine. Like he was happy as a clam going back and forth between boob and bottle. He would take a bottle like he didn't care. Um, it was all me like freaking out. <laughs> Um, but I think that for me was really surprising. And it was surprising to me that latching could be so hard. I mean, I think all the time in the land before pumps, like you think about child mortality, like this probably might've been it. Um, I also think that my stress level, my activity level, my, you know, internal motor, and, and this is just my personality. It's just hard for me to change, but just wanting to rev up again immediately, uh, definitely made it harder, right? Just from a milk supply process and from a like patient's standpoint. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that I did some things wrong and did, did myself no favors on, on the whole matter, but it also just was what it was and it was really hard. And so by six months, I just, my milk supply had dropped and we had moved on. We, we home make our baby formula. So we had moved on to kind of supplementing with formula. Cause I was down to like 10 or 12 ounces a day that I was getting out and I hadn't managed to freeze very much at all. And I kind of last September, like looked at myself in the mirror and cried and was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm giving this up. And then like mourned the whole thing for a bit. Uh, and then decided to stop. And, it, you know, they say that like your boobs are going to be so engorged when you stop and it's going to be painful. And like, literally I stopped and like, and my boobs were just like, we're over and out lady. Like, <laughs> All done. All done. <laughs> like milk just dried up within like a minute. Like it was comical. Um, so it was also just like listening to my body and where I was at and be and respecting the effort and that he got, you know, mostly breast milk for about six months and then just being like, okay, cool, we can do this. Like there's many ways that this is okay. And you know, for many moms, they're not able to breastfeed at all and their babies are fine. And so I just think being as committed to health as I am, and I'm one of those people as a doctor who just kind of knows too much. Um, I can get myself wound on, on perfection a little bit too much. And that probably didn't work for me either, but it's okay. You know, I, I have to reassure myself sometimes when my little one's eating like cheese and, and white flour. I'm like, you know what? He'll be fine. He'll be yeah. fine. Like, it'll be okay. We did the, like not it doesn't have to be perfect to be okay. Um, but it's hard. I know what you mean about getting wound up about things. Breastfeeding. I think the thing that surprised me most was that in it can take six to nine hours a day of your time. And that's a full-time job. And, and they're like, even saying it out loud and even hearing it and knowing that it's not the same as the visceral experience of being inside of it. And I, I kind of gained so much forgiveness for all of the moms out there who have so many other things and demands on their time. There are mothers who have to work. And that is actually more important for their family because right. they're providing more in that way um, for their children. Because if they didn't work, things would go really wrong. And once I started putting that together, I realized that it's not this dichotomy that we've put out there of like, breast is best and it's formula, formula is bad and one is better than the other. Well, that's, it's not actually the story. There's so much more to it. And I, it's been just such an awakening for me. Yeah. I mean, it's so true. And you know, listen, the research is that breast is best. And that makes sense because we're humans and we're animals and people forget that we're animals, not, you know, people living in a cyber cloud. Um, but we, at the end of the day, you know, not breast is great too, right? So your happy, healthy baby um, can be fed in many ways. And 
I do agree that fed is best. And yeah, the time suck. I mean, I mastered the art of sitting there at our kitchen counter pumping on calls, uh, on video calls where the screen would be like my, you know, clavicles up, um, (laughs) typing, uh, with my team with like a shroud over me in a WeWork glass conference room with people walking by on flights. I did have one flight moment pumping where I was on this flight to San Francisco. I was going for like a 48 hour trip. I had like pumped enough for him to have at home and I would do these short trips to California. I also went with him to California that two months and three months or three and a half months, like early on, um, he just came with me, but I was sitting between these two bros, like these two tech bros, Silicon Valley tech bros. And I had my pump and I had all my stuff and there's the plug, you know, in the, in the seats. And I was like, I, even I chickened out. I was like, I just, I can't do it. <laughs> And I went and found like a seat in the back. Luckily, it wasn't a completely full flight. And there was like a random seat somewhere where I could go pump and not sit between these two men. But, you know, we really put ourselves through the ringer. But the time is unbelievable. Uh, And it when you're trying to work and do that at the same time, whether you're pumping or directly feeding, there are even being the founder and CEO of my own company where I do have maybe some flexibility in, in different, different ways. The, the demands of my time are such that like, I don't have the flexibility just to breastfeed whenever or pump whenever. And I do have to be in a lot of calls and meetings and office time. And it's just, that's what it is. And the time of breastfeeding is unbelievable. Um, I just think that women who breastfeed are, are heroes. And if you're, it's easy for you, you're so lucky and that's awesome. And if it's not, you're like me and, and, you know, I was healthy. My son was healthy. There was nothing ostensibly wrong. It just like didn't work that well for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so many women who are probably going to be listening and crying relief because I have people who text me and call me and say, it's not working. I don't understand like what's going on. And so thank you for sharing your experience for everybody listening. So I, I want to make sure to ask you also about your journey into becoming a CEO, because you have such an extensive background in medicine and in in health, and you're a doctor. But on your bio, it says doctor and CEO. Talk to us about, was there an aha moment that you realized, like, I need to start Parsley Health? How did that come to life? Well, I think there were a lot of aha moments along the way. And and I went to med school being, let's say, a weirdo with a different idea of what I wanted to do with my degree. I wasn't 100% sure that that would be partially health when I started med school, but I was 100% sure that I would not just kind of like be a cardiologist or something. Like I knew that I wanted to do something around prevention, integrative medicine, holistic health, population health, public health, those things were what made me want to get a medical degree. And that all goes back to the seeds really being planted in college. I wasn't pre-med. I never thought I'd be a doctor, even in college. So that's sort of ironic um, because that's a bit late in life to not know that. But, you know, more and more people are finding medicine later in life, which I actually think is really cool. But I ended up, my grandmother was dying of colon cancer my sophomore year of college. And I ended up taking a course on the sociology, epidemiology, and biology of cancer. So like every way to look at cancer. And it was taught by one of the top cancer genetic researchers in the world who happened to teach at my university. And I took this course and as I got into cancer and was thinking about my grandmother who had effectively smoked her way into an early grave, she died um, pretty young of colon cancer as, as things go. And it was really from her years of smoking cigarettes and the many years of white processed flour and, and, you know, dairy probably hadn't helped either. So I got into this whole thing and I ended up writing this paper on alternative therapies for cancer and discovered these statistics of 50% of cancer is preventable and is driven by lifestyle and that there's these, all these other ways of approaching cancer around the world. And this paper won like the best paper of that year at my, my university, which is weird because like everybody else's paper was on like Dickens or something. Like it was a very odd paper to win this award. And I think that just early on piqued my interest in this idea of a holistic, more comprehensive approach to health. And so 
fast forward, I get to New York. I'm in my first job at the U.S. Attorney's Office prosecuting securities fraud as a paralegal. I hate it. I'm not sure what I'm doing there. And I find yoga and yoga just like blows the lid off of everything for me. It just like I found this moment of reconnecting my head and my body. And I find that most of us are living with this giant concrete wall of sorts between our heads and our bodies. And we kind of ignore our bodies until they break down. And then we wonder why they're breaking down. But in a world where 70% of disease today is chronic and lifestyle driven, the truth is we're living ourselves sick. And I discovered yoga and I discovered meditation and my diet changed. And I went from living on like shitty coffee from and with cream in it and diet Coke and wine and like sugar and bagels and stuff like a typical 22 year old in New York City's like work diet. It was just horrible to eating really well. And it's just this whole light bulb moment went off that connected what I had been interested in around cancer research in college. And so I decided to go to med school mainly because I thought that, well, if this is the reality, then, and medicine isn't bringing it forth to the world, then maybe I could help that if I had an MD. And if I had that foundational training that said, you know, medical doctor from top place, I ended up going to Columbia for med school. No one could argue with me, (laughs) basically was the thinking. And I took that and I took this passion for these things, which again, had been brewing over a long time with me through med school, into residency, along the way, ended up co-founding a tech company for healthcare um, with a friend from med school that's gone on to do well. So became a founder in the health tech space um, as a messaging app for care coordination for doctors and hospitals. So I had a really cool experience that I can get into if you want, but just creating an app um, in the early days of creating cool apps for healthcare and founding a company in a little little bit of exposure, though not honestly not very much, but a little bit of exposure to the fundraising process and just to startups in general. And so it was, but it was really in residency in New York City where training in internal medicine that I, I think I got really grounded in this idea that something had to change and I had to do something in primary care because most of your residency training in medicine is inpatient, meaning you're in the hospital, you're taking care of hospitalized people, Um, who are very, very, very sick, right? It takes a lot for us to hospitalize someone. So it means they're unstable. They need a major procedure, a major surgery. Their vitals are unstable. You're in and out of ICUs. But the reality is that most people in this this country are sick, but they're not sick to the point of needing hospitalization. And, And very little of your training in residency is actually what's called outpatient, where you're working like with just people who are coming into the clinic, right? Before they are so desperately ill, um, they need to be hospitalized. And so at residency was, you know, had my month or two of the entire year, a couple months of the entire year, um, doing that periodically throughout the year, you do the outpatient stuff. And in these clinic visits, you know, they're 15 minute visits. And that's barely enough time to hear one complaint, let alone to understand somebody's whole life. And at the end of the visit, you print out somebody's prescriptions and you have to physically sign them as a doctor. You know, your signature is still this thing that had to go. This is in the days we still had paper prescriptions, um, which actually wasn't that long ago. And the printers would print out four, four prescriptions at a time. And after every visit, I was printing out three, four, five of these sheets with four prescriptions on it and frantically signing them all and handing these people a stack of prescriptions for drugs and referrals to specialists, yet their conditions were all driven by what they were eating, their poor um, or lack of understanding of how to deal with mental health in a constructive way, as opposed to how we've all been taught often in this country, which is that you deal with stress through food or alcohol or media or something somewhat, you know, not so good for your health. And I was like, this is just criminal. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this. (laughs) This is not, what medicine should be. And I think that moment was when all of my interest in yoga and meditation and then my all the way back to the cancer research kind of came together. And I learned about the field of functional medicine, which is just a, an approach to medicine where we look at the root cause of problems instead of just band-aiding them with drugs. And we spend time with you and we get to know you. And our toolkit as doctors includes nutrition and supplements if necessary and medications if necessary and a mental health protocol and an exercise protocol 
and where we do in-depth testing and we're not just doing the basic, basic test that we wait to do in medicine to tell us if you're sick or not. We're looking at genetics and the microbiome and hormones and all these things in this much broader way to understand how you're functioning with the goal of not just keeping you alive, but helping you thrive. And so I knew about this field of functional health and I knew that primary care was broken and I knew that I had founded a tech company and had some of the wherewithal to kind of do something different. And all of these things coalesced in this like moment where I was practicing in New York City, working for another amazing doctor in New York at a typical functional health practice, very high-end practice, very expensive, really inaccessible to most people. I knew some of the top doctors in that space and I had spent time with them. And I just said, all right, what if we use technology to make this medicine smarter? And what if we tracked outcomes using data? And what if we created a new model for it so that it was affordable. And I just put together this P&L profit and loss spreadsheet uh, in Excel for like what this could look like. Like, is this a viable business? Like, can I stay alive if I go crazy and go do this? And that sort of launched it. And I think, you know, the only reason I had the guts, I would say, to leave my job and start this company was because of all of this all of these experiences along the way and the passion that I had developed between my grandmother dying too early and too young from colon cancer to yoga and meditation to learning about functional medicine to having experienced conventional medicine at its highest at places like Columbia and Mount Sinai. And I can't say that there was just like this one aha moment as much as there was the sequence of events that, you know, we can't plan in our lives sometimes, but that came together to form a very, very clear vision for what healthcare should be. And then it was like, well, let's give this a whirl and cross our fingers and hope it goes okay. (laughs) So here we are. What I find so fascinating about the field that you're in and the way that you're thinking about this puzzle is it's like, like we're at a river and we keep seeing a whole bunch of dead fish And all we try to do is like fix the dead fish instead of stepping back and saying, well, let's go upstream a little bit and see why we keep getting these results. And you answered so many of the questions I had for you in this story, which is so great because I was going to ask you about what functional medicine is for people that don't know. So how does that how does that translate into a company? What does the company do and how how have you set up Parsley Health. Like, can you talk about what Parsley Health does and for people who have never heard of it and don't know how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So we are a new system for primary care. And for 150 bucks a month, um, which equates to, if you do the math on the year, a little less than $5 a day, you get your own personal doctor who is trained not only at the highest levels of conventional medicine, but also trained in functional health. You get a personal health coach who is also certified in not only coaching and behavior change, but also has been trained in the principles of functional health. You get unlimited access to us online throughout the year for messages, questions, refills. Hey, I got a sinus infection. Can you e-prescribe something or do I even need something? You get discounts on all sorts of lots of cool stuff as part of your membership. And you get a partner and a team in your health to help you, whether you're dealing with a chronic symptom that doesn't have a name or a diagnosis yet, whether you carry a diagnosis of some sort of problem, or whether you're just looking to optimize your health and prevent things down the road. And so this level of care and all your visits are included um, with your doctor and your health coach. And we do all sorts of cool educational events along the way. and your doctor gives you a plan that your health coach helps you implement. Uh, That includes for every single person, specific nutrition recommendations, exercise recommendations, mental health plan and relaxation. We prescribe meditation to every patient. Everyone gets free access to a really cool app called Headspace where they um, can learn to meditate if they don't know how. Uh, You get recommendations for supplements. You can get referrals to specialists, just like a regular primary care doctor. You get everything a regular primary care doctor does, but you also get everything that a super high-end, $1,000 an hour functional medicine doctor does. And you get it for 150 bucks a month. And that is, for me and for, you know, our mission of our company is to revolutionize primary care 
uh, and to create a primary care system that helps you helps people live their health happiest, healthiest life in addition to helping them deal with disease. And so, you know, medicine's mission is is not to help you live your health happiest, healthiest life out in large. Medicine's mission is to like keep you alive. So I said before, which is, which is awesome and important. <laughs> Don't knock it, but that's different. If you're alive and sick and on 12 drugs and from driven by chronic conditions that are mainly lifestyle driven or diet driven or are reversible in some way, uh, I, to me, that's not good enough. And so that's what Parsley Health does. Who finds you? Like, are you finding that people come to you when they're in sickness in some way? Or what is it like? How do people stumble across you and find you? What are the new patients like? Yeah, so we are we are 70% women, but we do have 30%, you know, guys are holding strong. uh, But women, you know, women drive 80% of healthcare spending in this country. And before I answer how people find us, I just, you know, I think it's a really important thing for us all to know, and it gets ignored. Fewer than 4% 4% of CEOs in healthcare are women. And when we think about like some of the healthcare bills that at least attempted to go through last year, you know, 13 senators, 13 male senators walked into a room, shut the door and devised a new healthcare bill. And yet it, women drive 80% of all spending in healthcare. We are the caregivers. We are making decisions for our families. Men tend to uh, access healthcare when they're in crisis. And women are the ones who jump on the bandwagon first, which is why we have, you know, a little bit more female members than male today. Uh, and so I just think it's so important that we recognize that women should be in charge of healthcare, <laughs> not men, until that spending ratio changes. Um, I just, I believe that. It's not that men shouldn't have a voice in healthcare, but it shouldn't be that women have no voice in healthcare. And so people find us. So we have centers today in New York City, LA, and San Francisco. Uh, you can see us in person the first time and meet your doctor in person. That that is required. And then after that, after that, any any visit can be via video. So we do have people from around the country and the world who fly to see us the first time and then, you know, see us virtually. I would say the majority of people um, are local because in for if you're you're local to us, we can be your primary care doctor for you know sort of through and through. Um, if you live in a different state. You know, we recommend that you have somebody, primary, typical primary care doctor kind of on call for local needs if you need them. And people find us in for a variety of ways. I think there's a big group of people who have some sort of condition. Um, it could be a gastrointestinal issue, IBS, Crohn's, colitis, reflux. It could be a hormone imbalance, PCOS, PMS, menopause, um, infertility. We do a lot of work in fertility we actually have some early data showing that we're helping women avoid IVF and get pregnant naturally who were told that they would never get pregnant on their own. And I can get in more into why. Um, yeah. We do everything around cardiovascular health, blood sugar, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, heart health, high blood pressure. People are coming for mental health issues, depression, anxiety, fatigue, insomnia. Sometimes they want to get off of their antidepressants and need help. And autoimmune. Autoimmune disease has skyrocketed across the developed world. 78% of autoimmune disease is in women. 50 million people in this country have some sort of autoimmune condition, and that's growing very quickly. So autoimmune and inflammatory is a big one. And so people may come because they have a symptom in one of those areas, and they want a more comprehensive and holistic and root cause approach to that. And instead of just getting another drug and being like, well, you got eczema, take this steroid cream, someone might find that they're just allergic to dairy. And when they don't eat dairy, they don't have eczema, right? Not, and they're not scarring themselves with steroids. So they might be looking for that because they have a symptom or they might have gone so far as that they're being treated by a doctor and they're just, they're like hitting a wall and they want something better. And then some people find us again because they're just looking to optimize and they're looking to understand their body better. Maybe they have a family history. Maybe they have a parent um, or grandparent with dementia or Alzheimer's disease, and they want to not only get the genetic test to see if they have certain genes that make them more likely to develop Alzheimer's, but they also want an actual plan from a doctor on how to maximize their health to avoid that. Like, There's a lot of direct-to-consumer tests out there right now that'll give you information. None of them could tell you what to do, especially what to do in the context of you and all of your other systems. Like you need someone to look at all of you to tell you how to improve 
or optimize your your brain health, not just like one genetics test, because genes are just potential. They're not a diagnosis in most yeah. cases. Um, so people come for all of those things. And yes, I do want to ask you about the the early research that you have or the early data that's showing about getting people off of IVF and being able to conceive naturally. What are you finding? We're finding that a lot of women are being kind of sent down the the IVF chute by well-meaning doctors who aren't looking under the hood and asking the question, why can't you get pregnant? So PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, one of the number one causes in this country of infertility, impaired fertility, is a metabolic issue. So we have a patient, Lara, she actually told her story on our blog, you know, history of thyroid cancer, had had her thyroid removed, was on thyroid replacement hormone and had PCOS um, going back to high school. So before she even had the thyroid issue and was told that she, she had really irregular periods, really long cycles. Um, and was told she would have to have IVF or, or reproductive fertility services to get pregnant. She would never get pregnant on her own. We optimized her thyroid. We identified food allergies. We helped her get on a more low carb, more plant-based paleo type diet to help her regulate her cycles. We used some herbs and also some progesterone to help regulate her cycles a little bit better. Um, and she not only got pregnant once and had a happy, healthy baby girl, but she's now pregnant with her second um, also naturally. And so there are so many cases like that. Patient with three miscarriages told that she just had to start seeing reproductive endocrinology and that she was going to need help to get pregnant and to carry. Um, her body was inflamed. She had food allergies. We cleaned up her diet, um, also used some progesterone support, identified some genomics called MTHFR where she had a higher risk of miscarriage, put her on the right type of um, B vitamins for that. And within a couple months or a few months of working with us, she got pregnant again and just um, recently had her a healthy baby girl. So like, there's so many people who just are saying, oh, we can't get pregnant or you're having trouble or it's been six months. There's no investigation of what is going on with you. And I'm a huge fan of IVF and IUI. And I think we're so lucky to live in an era where we have these services. I'm not knocking them, but a lot of people don't need them. And it's a extremely expensive, extremely stressful you know, IVF breaks up marriages. It it causes so much woe. And I, one of my best friends just went through it and is thanks to IVF now pregnant. We're so happy, but it was for many people, it is, um, it's not always necessary and no one's asking the right questions. And so at Parsley, we look at a much broader data set. We get to know you as a person you know, there are so many hormone disruptors in our products. We get those out. You might have high levels of heavy metals. We get those out. You might have some autoimmune activity that you can quiet through the right diet and healing intestinal permeability that known as leaky gut that are all contributing. And it might not be one thing. That's the funny thing about this body we have. It's this complex ecosystem that we are. We are not a set of organ systems that don't talk to each other and what's happening in your cardiovascular system has nothing to do with what's happening in your uterus. That is bogus. We are interconnected systems. We are connected to our microbiome. We are connected to our environment, our diet, our relationships. Um, stress creates a hormone response in the body and that can deplete progesterone, making it difficult for you to carry a pregnancy. And yet no one's asking these questions. No one takes stress seriously. And so I just think that we're seeing this early data that we're helping women get pregnant who were told they were infertile or told they would need IVF because we're looking at the whole person. And it's not that that's ever going to be successful 100% of the time, but even if it's successful 20% of the time or 30% of the time or 50%, that's a massive impact on for women for their lives and for cost to our system. Yeah, so much so. I want to ask you about the, you've had so many different backgrounds and types of experiences, medical school and tech and founder. What has the path in entrepreneurship been like and what has surprised you about, or what has been challenging about entrepreneurship for you? I think all founders feel this way. So I don't think it's unique to me, but you just, 
there's no training for it. You just walk in and every day you have to make decisions, hire people in fields that you have no experience in yourself. You know, it's one thing for me to hire a doctor. It's another thing for me to hire a marketer or an operations lead. And I think you have to wake up every day and stymie from somewhere this deep conviction in what you're doing and probably a semi-delusional belief in your ability to do it. (laughs) And that is what creates success. And I think many of us have it in, in us, you know, but the thing that drives me every day is I still see patients one full day a week, um, which many people or investors or people are like, how do you still do that? How do you have time to do that? And I'm like, oh my God, it's the most important thing. It keeps me grounded. It keeps me using the technology that we're building. It keeps me relating to the doctors that we're hiring and part of um, our crew. It helps me stay grounded and connected to the purpose of what I'm building. And so I'm lucky in that I have that. I mean, not all founders sort of have that, but I think it's, it's hard and every day is hard and everyone knows that, but it's just the hardest thing for me. It's just been like the, the real realization that I don't, in many situations, I don't know what I'm doing. There's no precedent for this. And yet I have to make a decision and press forward. And I think some people have an appetite for that and the risk that it involves uh, and the level of responsibility that it entails and other people don't, and there's no good or bad to that. Like more power to you if you're like, no, thanks. Because <laughs> um, uh, it is a 24 seven job and there is no like stepping away from it truly. But I think for me, I love that. And yet the hardest thing is that, you know, nothing in my medical training prepared me to build technology. Um, my, my previous startup prepared me for that. And some consulting work I've done prepared me for that to some degree. But um, medical training certainly do, does not prepare you to build technology or run a business. It's so true. I think it, both entrepreneurship and parenting, there's just so little training. There's so little preparation. What do you wish that more people knew about either or both? What do you wish more people knew about entrepreneurship? And what do you wish more people knew about parenting? I wish on, on the entrepreneurship side, and maybe this is the bubble that I'm in at the moment. So I, I don't know if this is universally true, but I don't know. I see a lot of people founding a company just for the sake of it. Like they're, they have a lot, there's a lot of solutions looking for problems out there. And there's a lot of capital, there's a lot of money out there to be invested. And if you're a good fundraiser, and you're good at convincing people to give you money, you can convince them to give you money for things that maybe don't need to exist, and then ultimately fail, either because they didn't need to exist, or because you didn't believe in your heart in them in the first place. Um, And for entrepreneurship, it's like, if you're going to take this on, I think you you owe it to yourself, you owe it to your customers, you owe it to your investors to create something that actually like needs to be there in the world and that you have some experience in and, and expertise in and some like real conviction around. And I know that there's a lot of founders who have that. I'm not saying they're not, but I, there's definitely a climate lately where there's a lot who think up a nifty idea and get handed millions of dollars to sort of figure it out. Um, and that can work out sometimes, but mostly it doesn't. And then also for entrepreneurship that like, you know, for anyone who's out there like slogging it out, it's, you're, you're doing an amazing thing. You're creating something new in the world and that's awesome. And like, just keep your eyes at the horizon line and don't get too caught up in the, the weeds right at your feet. Um, because that's what it's going to take for you to get to where you're trying to go. Um, like where you're at, where your eyes go, your car goes, you know, um, parenting, I think, be intentional. Um, I think it really helps. I don't say that to be like, you should do this. I just say it because I think it's actually helpful. Uh, you know, during our, my pregnancy, my husband and I sat down and had a conversation about like, well, how do we want to do this? Like, how do we want to be? And we, we adopted this mantra, which was given to me. I didn't make it up from another mom that was open life insert baby. And we decided, and it was a decision, right? It was a choice. It was an intentional choice because there's a million things that have gotten in the way or, or would, would push us in another direction. But we said, you know, my husband and I are both only children. So we've, we've chosen our family or our friends, or our, our siblings and, and our, ch- our children will have no 
immediate cousins. So our friends' kids will, will be that. And we said we didn't want to give up our social lives and we didn't want to stop traveling. And I didn't want to not build this company and he didn't want to not do the things that he's doing. And so all of those moments, you'll come to these decision points, like this decision tree, right? Where you could like decide, well, it's not worth getting a sitter or it's not worth figuring out childcare. It's not worth like bringing your kid with you, um, for these experiences. And it's too complicated. It's too hard. So you kind of like default to something else, but because we've been very intentional now, this doesn't work out all the time for sure. Uh, Obviously kids keep you grounded in a way that's different, but we've been really clear about what we want. And as a result, we've created that. And our friends are all like, our friends with kids or friends without kids are always like, Oh my God, you guys are like how we want to be as parents. You guys like have dinners all the time at your house and you're traveling all the time and you're doing this stuff. And it's not because, you know, we have zillions of dollars in an army of staff. That is not true. Um, it's because we've, we've chosen to be like that and to figure it out. And I think our way is not the right way, right? Like I'm not telling people like go live this way because it's the right way. I'm just saying be intentional about what works for you so that when you have those decision points, you can fall back on something that you thoughtfully decided at a, at another time when maybe you weren't in the thick of it. And you can use that to help create the life that you want with your kids. And whatever that looks like for you is cool. But I just think that that for us has been really grounding and really helpful because neither of us were both only children. I wasn't a big babysitter. Like both of us sort of are suddenly like parents and we're like, Oh, what is this? What do we do? Um, (laughs) You're not experts at all. Um, Being a doctor just definitely does not make you an expert at parenting by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, I think that being clear and intentional about how we want to live our lives with kids albeit there's a million constraints to that, some financial, some logistical, some just around wanting to be with your kid more than you want to do some of these other things. But nonetheless, I think we've been able to create a life we are excited about. And that to me is has been the best thing. Mm. Well, I could do a whole nother episode with you asking you all the particulars of this intentionality of your parenting. Um, I love that as advice, you know, choose something, choose what, what's important to you. Where can people find out more about you and about Parsley Health? Yeah. So it's parsleyhealth.com. Parsley like the herb, P-A-R-S-L-E-Y, um, health.com. And you can also find us on social, on Instagram and Facebook, uh, Parsley Health. And me, it's Robin Burson, MD, uh, both my website and also on Instagram and Facebook and so forth. And find us, sign up for our newsletter. We have a really awesome newsletter at Parsley that our doctors and health coaches and myself uh, and other experts all write, where we really, our goal is to codify everything that we are teaching our patients and put it out there for everyone so that they, everyone can take advantage of this information. Um, So sign up for that. And that would be the best way. That's great. And what's I, I want to ask before I leave, I know we're almost at time. What's next over the coming year for Parsley Health? Because you just raised a whole bunch of money. So what what's the next thing? <laughs> oh, my gosh, so much. Um, <laughs> we are building out beautiful centers in all three of our existing markets, um, LA, New York and San Francisco that are going to be you've never seen a, a doctor's office like it. It's absolutely stunning. And we're using these principles of design that help um, make the space itself a healing environment. Uh, so that's really cool. Uh, we're building awesome new technology that uh, for for members and non-members alike. We are getting ready to, uh, this is going to be very small to start, but we hired our first pediatrician because 80% of our members who are parents asked us to see their kids. And so we're going to pilot um, a pediatrics membership initially just for our members in New York, but we're learning about that. So if you out there have thoughts on our kind of medicine for kids, please just shoot us a note or let us know because we're we're about to start testing that a little bit. And we're also um, at some point in the next year going to be launching a fertility specific membership where we focus our membership. Um, our membership right now is, is great for anyone. Um, it's like, no matter what you have going on, because we look at you as a whole person, we look at everything anyway, so we can sort of tackle anything, but, um, we're going to 
folk do a little bit of a focus um, testing something called a fertility membership where we don't not look at the all of you because that's just how we work and we can't not do that, but where we try to create a, a, a structure, let's say, where um, for women who are having trouble getting pregnant, just want support during their their pregnancy or their you know IVF process or are thinking about getting pregnant and just want to make sure that they optimize their health in every way so that they do have the best shot at having a healthy pregnancy. We're going to do that just because we've had so many people, we've seen such success with it that we feel like it deserves its own kind of special, special thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cool. Well, thank you for taking the time and for joining us here Thanks on the so podcast. Much. It's been awesome. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.